You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. We Christians, in other words, if we're particularly in, in not so privileged a position, we need to do one thing really well, and that is endure. Endure. Hang in there. Be strong in the midst of all the pressures that come upon you. This present life really wasn't set up to bring out your glory and to bring out everything that you're supposed to get. You know, when you're younger, if you're saying, here is what I want to do in life, here's my bucket list, here are all the things I want to do. Life was not set up that way for a believer. You've got to expunge that from your thinking. What makes something totally worth it to you? What would you give up? What difficulties would you walk through? James talks about what it costs the disciples to hold on to Jesus' promise that he'll come again. You'll gain some insight on the meaning of patience and endurance in the context of a follower of Christ, as Pastor Tom teaches today. Having those qualities will help you navigate through those rough seas of life that we all experience. Take heart, it will be worth it in the end to apply what you've heard today. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 5 as he begins his message, The Second Coming of Christ Inspires Christian Endurance. Do you believe it's worth it to suffer for Christ? Do you believe that it's going to be worth your while to take a stand for the name of Christ in this world, as dark as it is becoming in our society, and suffer. Maybe not get a promotion, maybe be gossiped about, maybe friends not like you as much, ostracized by family members. Do you believe it's worth it? Is Jesus' promises enough for you? Are they enough for your future? Do you believe suffering for Christ is going to be worth all of the pain in the end. That's a question that if you haven't asked it outright at some time in your Christian walk, you're going to come face to face with that question. You're going to have to ask it and answer it. I know that life has trouble whether you're a Christian or not. Job testifies to that. He says, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That's everybody. In John 16, 33, Jesus just said, in the world you will have tribulation. It's kind of the way the world is. Even if you weren't a believer, you'd have a lot of trouble. In Acts 14, 22, it says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Can't avoid it, but believers get more. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted, 2 Timothy 3. So if you want to be a godly person, you have marked yourself for persecution. There's an X on your back, target. 2 Timothy 1.8, Timothy was a little bit timid as senior pastor in the church of Ephesus, and Paul had to tell him, join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God. But is that worth it for you? Don't you have enough trouble already in life that you have to pile more on as a believer? Why would you do it? Well, it was enough for Paul. He believed it was worth it. He wrote in Romans, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you ever try to imagine while you're singing these great hymns what the glory of God is going to be like to be in the presence of God? And then try using your God-given imagination from that perspective to look back on your life and say, will it be worth it? And Paul, on this side of glory, said, Whatever I suffer now, shipwrecked, prison, beaten, 
All of that stuff eventually had his head chopped off. None of it is even worthy to be compared with the glory that I'm going to get. That was the perspective he had. Peter thought it was worth it. He wrote in his letter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of Jesus' glory you may rejoice with exultation. Oh, my there's going to be such an exuberant time of joy and exultation that you're going to experience. You're going to experience that. You and I are going to get to be in that. And so there's a degree in which you have to step out of your present circumstances and look to the future and think about what that's going to be like. And then from that perspective, look and come back at your life now and say, is it worth it? From that perspective. They said yes, Peter and Paul. Well, so does our text, James 5. Let's Open there if you haven't already. We'll read verses 7 through 11. It'll take us a couple weeks to work through this. I think what we have here are strategies for dealing with uh, the present life and all the evil that's there. We really have some good strategies for those of us that are not in power, but we're believers. We're living in between the two comings of Jesus. The first coming has already happened. The second coming has not happened. We live in the middle. What strategies can we have to live in the midst of that to deal with evil? This text really helps with that. Let's look at it. I'll read it for you. Verse 7, James 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Do you see the strategy there? Looking towards the prophets, not grumbling, having patience until the Lord comes. You can kind of see that already. This passage, at first glance, as you just surveyed, you can tell it's about the second coming of the Lord and it's about endurance until the Lord comes. And those are really the main themes that are there. Be patient until he comes. So the second coming of the Lord Jesus really comes out here. A little bit of eschatology from James. Not a lot of the details, but what we're supposed to glean from the doctrines of the end times. And you can see the spilling over in the application of eschatology. We could see that patience and endurance is stressed here. Uh, be patient is exhorted twice in verses 7 and 8. The word patience is used a third time there in verse 8. Then the word endure, which is similar in verse 11, and also the word endurance in verse 11. So you see all of that as a theme. We call this a paragraph or a pericope, and in the midst of that you see similarities and the point and the message that through preaching we're trying to bring out the message. Well, that's the message that's in there. And in some ways, this little section is similar to the opening section of the letter back in verses uh, 3 through 12 of chapter 1. You may remember way back in verse 12 of chapter 1, um, James wrote, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And really there, it was almost like the whole, all of life is a trial. And then he says, why is he blessed? For once he has been approved, you've got to go through that testing, Once he has been approved, once his faith is approved, once he passes through all of the trial and endures in his faith, once he has been approved, he will receive, future tense, the crown of life, the crown of life, being crowned with everlasting, glorious, joyous life, the crown of life which the Lord has promised 
to those who love him. In other words, when Christ comes back, he's going to bring that crown with him. And you have to believe that. And you can compare that, by the way, with verse 11 of this passage. It says, we count those blessed who endure. There you have it, kind of compared back and forth. So we also need to accept that in this passage, he's talking about the Lord's coming. And the Lord's coming as an incentive to endurance. Obviously, the Lord's coming is not talking about his first coming. That already happened. This is not looking back to the first coming for some lesson, although that would be a great lesson. We could preach on that. That's not this passage. This is looking forward to the coming of the Lord. This is looking to the future, to the fulfillment of prophecy, to what our eyes will see, and from that gleaning some some endurance, some strength now, getting us through all the difficulties, all the disappointments now as we look to the future. That's important for Christians. We accept that talks about the, the second coming of Christ is actually explicitly mentioned twice, and then it refers to him with the image of him standing right at the door as if he's about to open the door of the doorknob, and there he is. He's coming back. If we were to extend to the broader scriptures, we would say this paragraph here, just in terms of the flavor of this paragraph, really fits the theology and the, the message of Psalm 37 exhorting the righteous who are poor, don't worry, you'll get the land in the end, you'll get all the promises. So in the meantime, wait and be patient and suffer and be righteous. It's all worth it because you'll get everything in the end. Rest in the Lord, it says in Psalm 37. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, similar to the don't grumble here. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Don't go down that pathway, see? What are we supposed to do? Wait, be patient, endure. It'll all be given to you in the end. Evildoers will be cut off, it says in Psalm 37. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. There's still promises, by the way, physical promises to believers on this planet. So this text is meant to instill in us an attitude we need to adopt. We have to face the world. You can't get out of that. You can't escape that. The world is the world. It's going to be the way it is. There's tribulations in the world, trouble here always for everybody. But we can have a strategy. We can have a plan. We can have a method of how to deal with it. That's what this passage is trying to teach us. We stand here in between the two comings of Christ. Are we closer to the second coming than the first coming? I sure hope so. Nobody knows. It seems like it. What do we do? Be patient. A generation ago, the believers had to be told, be patient. A generation before that, the believers had to be told, be patient. Three generations ago, same message, be patient. Ten generations ago, be patient. It's the message. It's there. It's in the scripture. Every generation has the same message. And the poorer you are, the worse it is for you in this world, the more precious that doctrine is. Many of those who were slaves in America in the past, they focused on the time that was a coming, and it was important to them. Many who are poor, and they realize there's no ladder of economic progress for them that made them want the next order of things even more. It wasn't pie in the sky, it was reality that was coming to earth and they could taste it. So must we. That's what hope is all about in anticipation. So this tells us we have to be patient and endure and wait expectantly for what? The judgment of Jesus Christ. You know, we talk so much about the salvation of Jesus Christ. We also have to wait for the judgment of Jesus Christ. That's part of what we're expecting. When he is revealed, he'll put everything right. 
He'll kind of reverse everything the way it is. The world's upside down right now. It's not the way it ought to be. When he comes back, he'll set it the way it ought to be. And really, this passage is built on three imperatives. Be patient. That's the commandment in verse 7. Don't complain. That's the commandment in verse 9. And then really, it comes out this way. Receive as an example, verse 10, the prophets. Be patient. Don't complain. Receive as an example. I kind of put it into this strategy here for life in the here and now. First, be patient until the Lord Jesus comes. That's verses 7 and 8. Second, do not complain against one another. That's kind of in-house church stuff. Verse 9, we'll get to that. And then third, follow the godly examples of perseverance that we've already been given in verses 10 and 11, right? Be patient until the Lord comes. Don't complain against one another and follow the godly examples. You've been given a pattern of which to model your life after. You already know the right way to live because there's people that have lived it for us already. Model that and you'll do okay. That's our strategy, okay? So here we go. First, be patient until the Lord comes. Look back at verses 7 and 8. He writes, therefore, be patient. There's the... There's the imperative, brethren, and there's the change of tone from the previous passage. Until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, that goes along with patience, for the coming of the Lord is near. Really, the coming of the Lord is near. Really, you can hear the mockers already. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, let's back up. The word therefore connects this thought to the previous paragraph. The poor, godly, the poor, righteous, are to be patient in the midst of the abuse and the persecution by the unbelievers, the unrighteous landowners, those rich landowners that abuse their privileges. That's the logical connection. Now, we come here and we're given instruction to the poor. Now he's talking to the believers. In verses 1 through 6, he was talking to the unbelievers. In verses 1 through 6, the whole tone is judgment on the unbelieving rich. In verses 7 through 11, he encourages patience and the evaluation of the present in light of what's coming for the poor. So this paragraph really reverts its tone back to speaking to believers. Notice brethren is immediately said. We didn't see that in verses 1 through 6. We Christians, in other words, if we're particularly in, in not so privileged a position, we need to do one thing really well, and that is endure. Endure. Hang in there. Be strong in the midst of all the pressures that come upon you. This present life really wasn't set up to bring out your glory and to bring out everything that you're supposed to get. You know, when you're younger, if you're saying, here is what I want to do in life, here's my bucket list, here are all the things I want to do. Life was not set up that way for a believer. You've got to expunge that from your thinking. You're not here to get to do all the things you want to do. Sorry. You're supposed to get rid of your will and ask God for his will in your life, even if it's hard. Jesus didn't say, well, you know what? I'd like to live to 83 or 91. I'd like to visit all these countries and travel and do all these nice things. He said, nevertheless, Father, not what I will, but thy will be done. He gave himself over to that. That's what you and I are supposed to be doing. And it's meant to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's not about the American dream. It's about the kingdom of God, seeking it first. I'm getting ahead of myself. The basic exhortation comes out, be patient, be patient. Makro thumeo, it's a compound verb. Makros is a, is a word which means long, and thumeo is wrath or anger, so it means let there be a long time before you get angry. So that comes out as long-suffering or patience in our language. Let there be a long time before you get 
angry. God is slow to anger with all the evil he sees. You be slow to anger with all the foolishness and all the folly and all the ridiculous things that are being done in our society. You be slow to get angry. Be patient. And we'll get the reason why in a minute. Sometimes patience is distinguished from endurance, hupomone. We think uh, we're patient with people and we endure circumstances. And if you go and do a word study with these two, you'll find out that that kind of bears out in Scripture. A lot of the exhortations for being patient, love is patient and kind, they have to do with how we treat other people. And then a lot of the talk about endurance has to do with being under circumstances and trying to just get through a really tough time. That's true. In this passage, that distinction does not hold up. They're used interchangeably. We have to also endure people and we have to be patient with long-term circumstances. Dr. Hebert catches the strategy of this patience, I think, well with these words. It does not call for a passive resignation to one's fate, but an attitude of self-restraint that enables one to refrain from hasty retaliation in the face of provocation. That's patience. Good description. The opposite of patience, then, would be what? We'd say impatience. No, it would be this, wrath and revenge. Wrath and revenge. When you fire back a word, when you get back at someone with a silent treatment, when you make sure they get it, you're not being patient, and neither am I. See, the Bible's solution for the oppression of the poor class, the believing poor class in verses 1 through 6, is not revolution. Sorry, Americans. It's not Occupy Wall Street. Sorry, it's not it. It's not rioting in the streets. That just increases evil. It's not picketing. Something more powerful is our strategy. Waiting for the precious and powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who will right all the wrongs. Do you like that strategy? Or does that seem kind of lame and weak to you? wonder how worldly your thinking actually is. See, we don't march. We don't protest. We don't do that. We have something far better. We have the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Not what's going on in your mind. Not the strategy you're using. Well, I'd exhort you from this to change. We're not here to fix society. We're here to demonstrate Christ-like character in the midst of society. We could do that no matter how bad things get. That's why we as a church and our philosophy of ministry are into ministry and into evangelism, not political action. There's no power in political action. There's nothing that affects eternity in political action. We have much more lasting and eternal power when we do the strategy that we have here. That is, endure and have patience and wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our strategy. That's the Christian strategy. That would be the strategy whether we were in a democracy or a kingdom, whether we were with the Nazis or whether we were with the communists. That's our strategy as believers. We are to be patient, notice, all the way. It says, until the coming of the Lord. When's that? I don't have a date for you today. Until is a temporal word. It tells us that you're going to wait, but you're not going to have to wait forever. You are going to have to wait, but it's going to go up to a point. And at that point in time, you won't have to wait any longer. You will have to wait all the way up until then, but when it comes, you won't have to wait any longer because then it all rolls. It all happens. It happens fast. And what is that? The coming of the Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus. He's coming back to earth. And so patience has to last a long time. They didn't know how long it was going to be back then. This is the first century. James, this is, this is probably the first half of the first century. 
But they're repeating the same thing in the second century, the third century. Now we're in the 21st century, same thing. We don't change from that. Many of us probably think that we're going to die before the Lord Jesus comes back. But the waiting of the church is still, the goal is still the second coming of the Lord and the resurrection that will happen at that time. Now, this coming of the Lord, this term that is used here, parousia, is a word that is commonly used for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the interesting thing about this word is there are a number of words that are used for Jesus' coming, such as appearance, but this is the one that really stresses the actual presence of the Lord, that when he comes, he's coming, and he's going to have a personal presence among us. Some people like to translate it instead of presence or coming. They like to translate, wait until the arrival of the Lord, because that word arrival has the idea of, oh, he's going to be right here with us, and we're going to be in his presence. That's the idea of this term. It emphasizes that Jesus himself, not in some representative way, not in some strange sign, he himself will be here among us. Exciting, huh? The same term is used of Paul in his presence in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, when uh, the Corinthians, some of the Corinthians were making fun of Paul, and they said, you know, Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. That's the word, his presence there, his coming. Extra-biblical Greek used this very term when a king would decide to visit some city or some province. He would arrive there, and all of the citizens would get ready. The king is coming. So here's the royal personage, and he's going to arrive. And when he arrived, all the citizens would be blessed by his presence, and there'd be festivities, and there'd be all of this type of stuff. That's the idea. Christ is coming. Our king is coming. Not in some vague way, but in his person. He will be seen by all. He will bless us with his presence. Jesus said it this way in the Olivet Discourse. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And he goes on with the suddenness of it and the fact that they're not even recognizing that it's about to happen. That's how it is today. It's exactly like the days of Noah. No one expects Jesus to come back. I mean, who talks about that? 2 Thessalonians 2 and 8, it says, Then that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end, by what? By the appearance of his coming, his presence, his arrival. Same word. Christ is our royal personage. He's our politics. He's our government. And we wait for him. He's where our hope is. He is where things will be put right. He's our king. He's our ruler. He has a government that's on his shoulders, it says in the prophecies, and he's bringing it. When he comes, the greatest blessing of his arrival will be him, himself. He will be here. You see all the people get so excited about going out and seeing someone who's running for office or about seeing someone who's in some royal lineage, you know, visits America, and this is, you know, the nephew of the of the queen's aunt or something, I don't know. Jesus, the king of kings, is coming. Lest we forget what that second coming is going to be like, the Bible says it's going to be dramatic. Not at all, not at all like his first coming. His second coming will be definitive. There will be no effective opposition to him. There will be no polls. There'll be no voting. There'll be no political parties. He will arrive. He'll slay every non-Christian. And he'll take his throne and no one will stop him. Now is just a time where, where the king is sending out ahead of times the terms of surrender to the rest of the world. Are you a Muslim? Surrender. Are you a Buddhist? Surrender. Are you an atheist? That's foolish. Surrender. Are you an agnostic? Are you a Hindu? Doesn't matter. All of you surrender your gods, surrender your religions, surrender your allegiances. The king is coming. 
You have time now, you won't then. He'll come suddenly. He'll slay you then. These are his terms. He wins. You surrender now or die. Eternal death. He is the winner. We get to herald that message of the king. We run out ahead of the king before he comes in his presence and we proclaim the gospel, which is good news. There's a chance for you to be delivered from your sins. There's a chance for you to have pardon and forgiveness. It won't be then, it's now. We don't care if nobody likes it, it's what's gonna happen. That's the message, we don't change it, he's coming. Belief is a powerful thing. What do you believe? What would you do to show others that believe? James implored everyone in Bible times to live like they knew Jesus was coming again. You learned from Pastor Tom today some practical ways you can deal with this world while exemplifying endurance and patience, the same two qualities that got many a men through very difficult days. Dear ones, grasp onto this truth. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Feeling defeated? If you need hope that nothing you do in this world is in vain, you'll want to tune in next time to hear Pastor Tom. He explains how important it is to give all control over to God, to be patient, to face your trials. Pastor Tom will encourage you to see everything through the lens of Jesus' return. That is what will help you to continue in your difficulties. That this world, if you are a believer in Jesus, isn't the end. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.